I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thanks, John, and thank you to the LRB for having us here and thank you to Diane. I mean, I feel kind of amazed that I'm sitting in this shop with Diane Williams in conversation with you. I really, I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I do feel hugely honoured. Um, and her 764 page <laughs> collection spanning three decades mm-hmm. and eight collections of work is just absolutely fantastic. I mean, I am a bit of a devoted. I'm kind of like, I've become a bit of a Diane groupie, um, even though I actually only came across her work about three or four years ago when Fine, 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 Fine came out with Charles, who published a book of mine, and um, I read Diane's stories, and I was just so kind of overwhelmed. I felt so sort of delighted by the state of feeling perplexed, feeling really alive, feeling really happy, um, feeling like my um, nerve endings were being kind of stretched. I really, and I felt like I was sort of reading the work of somebody who I understood, which is we've just been downstairs talking about books and I was saying how rare it is for me to actually enjoy reading and I worry about that and worry it must mean there's something wrong with me but I never feel that with I just never feel that with Diane's work it's just it's a perpetual pleasure to the point actually that reading this collection um, I became so absorbed in your stories that you start to kind of slide into the stories and and many of which are about men and women quite often sort of heterosexual couples of sort of bourgeois life is that that's kind Probably, of my yes. interpretation <laughs> and I find myself seeing myself and more worryingly seeing my husband who is here tonight <laughs> there was a moment this week where he was standing in the bedroom with his trousers around his sort of calves and it just I had Diane there with me <laughs> and I just found myself thinking oh my god it's like I am one of these stories <laughs> and we've got a dog so all the times the dogs appear and the dogs muddle up with the husbands and is it the dog or the husband licking her vagina I'm just sort of 
But I just love it. I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of the reading. Of the reading. Of the reading. Who knows what I actually mean? Anyway, I wanted, to, I wanted to tell you that because some of you might be thinking, why is she sitting up there with Diane? And I'm not sure that I'm necessarily qualified to, but I just love your work. Well, thank you. So for those of you who don't know it or haven't heard her read, and I do kind of think you should have a, an audio book because you read so well, Diane's now going to read for about 15 minutes, several stories, and then we're going to have a conversation. It would be really wonderful if you all participated in that after, after a few questions with me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I've, thank you. I'm very honoured that you're here today, <laughs> that all of you are here today, and very happy. And I was here once before, Kirsty Gunn, who's sitting here, introduced me, and it was quite an important evening. And I was so frightened, so frightened. And by the time it was over, I wasn't as frightened, but tonight I thought I would start by saying I decided not to be frightened and see if that was the truth. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping I'm not as frightened, because it's not a good feeling. I'm going to begin with a story um, called All-American. Can you all hear me? Yes? Um, and as you might know, we're quite, quite taken up with being All-American right now. It's devastating to be American right now. All-American... The woman who is me, why pretend otherwise? Wants to love a man she cannot have. She thinks that is what she should do. She should love a man like that. He is inappropriate for some reason. He is married. When she thinks of the man, she thinks force. And then whoever has the man already is her enemy, which is the man's wife. The woman makes sure the man falls in love with her. She has fatal charm. She can force herself to have it. Then she tells the man she cannot love him. In return, she says, you are in the camp with the enemy. Of course, the woman knew the man was sleeping with the enemy before she ever tried to love him. And the word enemy gives joy the same as I get when the wrong kind of person calls me darling, as when my brother says, okay to me, goodbye, darling, before he hangs up the phone after we have just made some kind of pact, which is what we should do because I have to force myself to love the ones I am supposed to love, and then I have to force myself on the ones I am not supposed to love. I got my first real glimpse of this kind of thing when I was still a girl, trying to force myself on my sister. I didn't know what I was doing until it was obvious. We were in the back seat of the family car. The car had just been pulled into the garage. The others got out, but we didn't, and I thought I was not done with something. Something was not 
undone yet, something like that. And I was trying to kiss my sister, and I was trying to hug my sister, and she must have thought it was inappropriate. Like, what did I think? I was a man and she was a woman. I must have been getting rough because she was getting hysterical. I remember I was surprised. I remember knowing then that I was applying force and was getting away with it. This next story I often read at the end of a reading because I find it quite rousing. But I don't know how you'll like it. It's called To Die. I undressed myself. I wanted sex. I wanted sex. I wanted sex. I wanted sex. I climbed into bed with my wife. She wanted sex with me. She always wants sex with me. When I discharged myself this time into her, I was feeling myself banging as high up into her as I have ever gotten myself up into her. I had just done the same with another woman who always wants sex with me. There is another woman that I do the same with. There is another woman. There is another woman. There are five women who always want sex with me. They're always ready. It does not matter when or what or where, but they are ready. I have a great deal of money, which I have earned. (laughs) I have physical beauty for a man. I have intelligence. I have work to do, which I love to do. But women are what I prefer to anything to lie down with them, the turning to touch the woman, and knowing I will be received for sex as soon as I wish to be welcome. (laughs) I have been at it like this, this way for years. It does not matter when I will die. I have had everything I have ever wanted. I should die now. There should be a killing at my house. There should be much, so much more for me, which I am not able to conceive of. And now, my radiant girl. I'm not so sure there is a reason to tell this except for my wanting to say things about magic, about myth, about legend, that brighten up your day if you believe in magic, myth, legend. It was Coleridge who said we might brighten up the day this way. Emerson might have said there are real nymphs in your city park if you look. Oh, I'm sure Cocteau and George Eliot had their opinions on nymphs. Let's say Edith Wharton's daughter had the last word. I'm adding, though. My nymph in Central Park, I did not know was a nymph right off. I believe thoroughly in her now. The nymphs don't have to be little. She was. She had removed most of her clothing. Men watched. There she was, oiling herself, an unblemished beauty, with her teacup breasts, with boy hips, covered by her sunning suit, 
which she had had concealed under the other clothes, a necklace rimming her neck and yellow hair tied back. She looked at nothing except to do the sunning, to take care of the oil, her skin, or how she should rise up or she should lie down or turn. She had to look. Two men next to me, whom I also earnestly watched, watched earnestly. I'm a woman. You don't take that for granted, I suppose. Or that I believe in ghosts just because I say, see the nymph. As Yates said, there are no such things as ghosts. Ghosts, no. There are those mortals who are beautifully masquerading and those of them who are carried off. Okay, as Yates did not say. Sometimes girls like her are gotten rid of in a not-so-gentle way. Socrates said of one, a northern gust carried her over the neighboring rocks because I said so. He said, I was swollen with passion. Nietzsche said, the people of the cities had the machine to get rid of them if they are annoying. (laughs) It was Captain Stewart who informed me that because I saw the girl... You will rise to the summit of your power, then you will die a violent death. He said that. His records confirm this fact. So far, I have told the truth. It was straight from my heart to say we would be killed. I didn't say that I'm moving through the decades here. Um, So this was some early work. So, this is still early, but further along, maybe 15 years in. (laughs) This is another one that's fun to read, but there are people who don't like it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okie doke. The man lied is the best ingredient in my veal steak deluxe. I'm going to vacation in the man lied. I never will. The man lied for the third time. I, the man, lied. That's wonderful and exciting, and I look forward to it. He is telling me how many the man lied he has to have in a day. I expected to the man lied blood. The man lied I have never seen. The man lied like that one. On the man lied when some chicken and a potato were roasting in the oven. I would not leave the man lied. I like to tell the man lied how many orgasms I had in a day. The man lied was sure I was hearing a waterfall. But what I heard was the grinding of the man lied. So now where am I going? I'm going to... I think I've messed up. I'm going to the source of authority. A sad story I heard is that I have to have someone take care of all the bothersome aspects of my life. Tooth, leg, wrist, vein. It feels so unsexual to complain. But when the weather is bad, I go walking, I wander about, but I go to the lake because I believe the lake is better than I am, and I want to be in good company. 
its beauty, its success, its remote aspect, its inability to speak, hints at intelligence and virtue more pure than mine, better. The lake means something. I rub the lake and my veins wriggle. I try to make a few things real. There is so much silver. Occasionally the lake looks at me coldly, which gives me the creeps. I have had no subsequent conversations with it. We speak about nothing, I tell myself. On the shore, to myself, I say, do you really need all of this? It's so crowded. Do you really need all this? I try to be independent. Is that wrong? This story's much further along. Flower. He is the only one you will sleep with, and you two will consult with each other about everything, her father said. Go live with him. He will welcome you. I am certain. Do you want to be rich? Her father said. Yes, she said, I'm sure. Susan, said the father. Yes? He said, to get that nipple to stand up, squeeze it. (laughs) This one is called Stand. My friend said, I fell in love with the neighbor. I said, your husband fell in love with the neighbor? My friend said, no, she said, I fell in love with the neighbor. She was counting her fingers. She said she couldn't get the neighbor's penis to do anything. As a matter of fact, I couldn't get his penis to do anything either. It hung like a mop, or it had a life of its own. How it came up in the first place, I don't know. (laughs) He couldn't get my vagina, I wanted to say, to utter a word. But since one should always make room for fun, we all ate food and we laughed. (laughs) The last time I saw my friend was when she was finishing her drink, gulping. Was it the sound of the sea, perhaps? How the sea very slowly and with great effort laps but does not go down, I want to say, in one gulp. The last time I saw my friend's crepe de chine skin, her frizzy hair, her dark breasts that wriggle raw, I said to myself, you had enough? (sighs) (laughs) Um, This one is human being. Now I have a baby boy and a five-year-old girl. Being married, I thought, I'd always be married to Wayne because he tried to be perfect. What more could he ask for? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now I'm moving into what are the so-called news stories, but actually I 
this was quite a while ago, and it was published, I'm happy and very uh, gratified to say, in the London Review of Books. Oh, darling, I'm in the garden. Tell them all to leave. I won't look, her husband had said. He'd just returned from a visit to town when he said, tell your boyfriends to leave. Oh, darling, his wife said, I'm in the garden. And she went back outside to stand a moment near the flowering vine, the trained pillar form by the doorway. Not today. None of the boyfriends were with her today. And she felt poorly on account of it. Nonetheless, in the salad garden, she could contemplate the bib and oak leaf and the tom thumb, and she watered a potted plant. Then she knelt to snap off its finished blossoms, and she littered the lawn with them. On the sidewalk opposite, she saw her neighbor, Mr. Timmings, embracing his often pincher. She left her yard well prepared to charm either one of them. Inside of the Timmings' abode, the two forgot about the dog and worked hard to put a positive emphasis on one another. Within minutes, she found herself in the correct position, as if for sleeping, making the minor adjustments of her arms and legs as necessary. This posture has been her salvation, and Mr. Timmings on his knees conjoined soon with her overhead. Mercifully, she is free of any diseases, is intelligent, outgoing, confident, and also she tolerates hot weather reasonably well. (laughs) People who live with her admire her sympathetic nature, although she is not recommended for households with toddlers or small children, And once she's alert, it takes her a while to settle down. (laughs) That's it. Thank you, Diane. Um, The first thing I wanted to ask you or put to you was um, on the back of this book, you were described in many great terms, but one of the quotes is that you are one of the true living heroes of the American avant-garde. Yes. And I wondered nice. how you... And I thought it was interesting they said living, as if the others are all dead. Um, but um, I wondered how you feel about that. Is that a description that you, that you recognise? Are you happy to be seen to be part of the avant-garde? Well, anybody would like to be called a hero, but I don't feel like a hero. So that's too bad. I mean, it would be great to feel like a hero. Um, and I, the word avant-garde is elegant, and, um, and I really don't know what it means. I oh, mean, especially, I was hoping you might tell us. Especially <laughs> yeah. now, I, 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 uh, I'm feeling age. I wonder, I would like to feel that one could step forward or downward into old age with white hair and be avant-garde. That's a great idea. Um, but it's something I never, never think about. 
I never think about it. I'm only writing the way I can write. So I don't have any ambition to, to be sort of... Uh, to, to, to be in an avant-garde condition, right. whatever it may be. And, and <laughs> the idea of being heroic, I thought about actually kind of quite seriously, that I think that, um, that one of the things I really admire about your work is it feels like you really... You know, you're incredibly brave. You're, it's very courageous work. I mean, we all laugh at it, and you are very funny, but I also think that your work is very brave. You really sort of pound yourself. You, it feels like you really work and work and work away at your texts. That's that true. That it's a battle. That's true. Is that how it feels yes. to produce them? Yes, it's definitely a battle, and I'm not happy unless I'm in a condition of... of of unease and a bit of fright right at some point i mean people ask have asked me are you trying to shock anyone and my only response to that is i'm trying to shock myself yeah i'm shocked so otherwise it wouldn't be interesting to do yeah, I mean, I don't feel that you. it feels like you're trying to shock. It feels like you're just working and twisting and pushing. And Yes, but I'm trying to get to some place that I haven't, some condition that I haven't been in before. Right. Another thing that was mentioned in the introduction, I really like the introduction by Ben Marcus. Yes. Um, he says, a fabulous line, that your stories make a kind of blood sport out of the domestic scenes you create. Yes. That's quite accurate, isn't it? I guess it is true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is true. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people would say the domestic scene is is one of the... uh, it's 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 a theater for blood sport. Yes, I would definitely say that. That was yes. my next question. I mean, grow, growing up, I was well aware that in our home we were um, unkind, we were um, um, chaotic, and um, I mean, we had felt we had the right to be, and then we would go out in the world and we were meant to be polite. And I, I knew that there were these two different worlds, but um, it, it's taken me far too long to understand that both places ought to be have civility. <laughs> so is that... I mean, I don't want to kind of attempt to, to analyse you, but yes. is that what you're sort of trying to uncover? Because you said a bit earlier, we met a little bit earlier for a tea... And we talked a bit about the fact that you attended the classes of Gordon Lish in the 80s and 90s and that he tries to get writers to find their wound or uncover their wound. Would that be yours? Um, Yes. (laughs) How's that for an uninteresting answer? I think think that, that his ambition for... For his students was that they unsettle themselves. I I like to. I didn't understand myself very well, and I didn't understand the world. I had a, a a very dim, dim, poor understanding of the world. So, 
what was interesting for me was to take what what and and my um, conceptions, my my rules to live by, had all failed me at a, at the point I was studying with Gordon Lish. So it was interesting for me to take whatever structure I had and 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 turn it over, or or let if I think I think this, what would it be like if I thought that? Right. Or if I fear this person, what would it be like to speak with that, that person's voice? That person that I fear has so much power, it seems to me. I would like to have that power. And it seems like that person is living a grand life. And, and I want to I take that voice. Well, that, that was certainly my my hope when I wrote that story to die. Right. Let, let me feel with that. Let me feel that, what, what the tyrant feels. And it was very exciting. And, the, the, <laughs> and then kill him. <laughs> the first two collections, I think, in this collection, the first yeah. two books that you published, were published while you were still having classes with Gordon Lish? Um, not the second book. Okay, the first one. So, But you did publish work while you were still sort of under his tutelage, was it? I mean, I, I just wondered if you have any memories of those days, of, of, of what he, of what those lessons did for you. Because it sounds like, I mean, I've been reading quite yeah. a bit around him in preparation to, to talk to you. Yes. And it sounds like he was someone who could actually have sort of totally crushed some writers. But you obviously completely came through that. Yes. So your question? Well, I wonder what your memories are of what he, of what he did for you, of what you gained in those classes. What were I those, see. What... I, I think it was the permission to speak that no matter how physically fragile you might feel or how poor you might feel your education was or how... Um, um, unworthy you might think you are to say a word that anyone should listen to, you nonetheless had cause to speak and permission to speak. And that if you spoke um, with, with honesty about something that was imp- of some import, that um, that there was a chance to join the, 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 the conversation that mattered. Yeah. And this was a um, very exciting idea. Yeah. And, and he was also talking about what might be the so-called, as I perceived it, the, I, the ideal literature. None of us could ever imagine really producing it, but what would that ideal literature or text be like? So there was a description of it that I found very um, persuasive. And do you think you do now produce the ideal literature? I, I couldn't say that for myself. I mean, but, but it but it's motivates me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ambition. And when you read, as you have done tonight, those early stories, how do you feel about them? Do you, do you like them? It depends. Sometimes I look at them and I'm very, very disappointed. And I think they're thin and failed. And there are other days I look at them and I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> so who knows? It, it's, 
it's a volatile, my, my sense of what I've done. And on the days when I think it's all, all for nothing, it's, it's very depressing because I've devoted my life to it. <laughs> there um, have been some very nice reviews about these collections, and I did want to come a bit later to something about reviewers. But um, in, I think, the one in the New York Review of Books... Um, the author referred to a note that she'd found from your private sessions with Lish in which you say that a good writer can make the reader be a fucky of time. And I just didn't understand that at all. I'm not sure I do either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at that and looked at it and read it and read it. I mean, it sounds very grand and it's something to puzzle over. Yeah. It's something to puzzle over. I mean, the, the idea of, of being time-bound or transcendent to, 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 uh, he used to talk about, and I think about it too, that all of us want to be transported and to feel unbound and to feel power and to feel untethered from our burdens and to be in some sort of alternate world. It's, it's a thrilling idea right. to be captured and then, you know, to have it be meaningful, not to just to be punished, obviously. So um, w- most of us are looking for that. Take me away, you know, take me away and, and give me a, a, a great experience that, that will matter to me. Which you certainly do for me, I have to oh, say. Oh, well, that's very kind. Well, you do. I mean, I'm not just saying that. You really definitely do. Particularly, I mean, you said at the beginning it's awful being an American at the moment. It's pretty bad being British. Yes. And the one thing that I've really appreciated about your, this collection is I, when I read it, I, I do actually manage to sort of almost forget about Brexit. You actually have one short story that's titled, I can't remember exactly the title, but it's got the word Remain in it, Waiting for Remain. And I found that immediately I started thinking about Brexit and I didn't oh, read I that story. But apart from that, you totally okay. take me away. Um, Lish also said that writing should be like therapy, that the act of unpacking every single word is a psychoanalytic act. Yes. And I wondered if that was also your That experience. was my experience, yes. That the, 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 the weights that I was certainly carrying at, at, at the, when I began my work that's in this book were very difficult for me to bear. Right. But I did find that, that objectifying them and putting them on the page gave me more power than I had ever experienced. And how do you... Uh, I hope people forgive me asking this question, but for me as a writer, it just feels like such an important question. How do you set about writing your stories? I mean, do you sit down at a desk... No. And start working? Or no. You take, no. It feels like you're going about picking stuff up like a magpie from That's conversations true. and parties. No. And the, I mean, and I've spoken about this often, about the condition I feel that is very real and unbearable, that I have nothing to say and I have no ideas. I'm oh really God. an empty vessel. And it, that's an awful feeling. I don't remember very much. I have very few memories. What few I have, I've, I've tried to exploit. But it's, it's a terrible way to live. So if I sit down to work and to make something of this life that that's, feels very thin, um, I, it's like um, walking up a mountain backwards. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't know 
I, I'm just hoping that that I can make something out of out of found uh, words and phrases, and it, it's like working with trinkets and, and making some sort of um, uh, collage with the what little I have. I'm I'm working with very very little. I find that astonishing because you make so much out of so little, and you and you. Um, it seems to me, and correct me if you think this is wrong, but you work on similar material. Your focus is quite, even over the years, is quite, um, I don't know if narrow, but you sort of yeah, focus on... Probably. But, but yet you keep producing astonishing material that's Thank different. You. And I find that really exciting and 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 inspiring actually thank you for saying that just to be able to do that to keep on pulling and pulling and pulling like a sort of spider creating a a web it's just you know i can't i find that amazing i find it amazing too (laughs) i mean i don't know if it's going to work i mean it's all it's it, it feels like being when I was a little girl, we used to, I don't know if you ever did this, or maybe little boys could do it too, but to be permitted in your mother's kitchen and given, you know, salt, flour, um, Water. Uh, uh, dye, food dye, yeah. um, I, um, a, a maybe some milk, water, and just mix it around, keep mixing and mixing and mixing. Of course, I, I love the idea of witches and cauldrons and turning it and turning it and turning But I do that with text. Yes. I, I'm always um, stirring it. So, so do you have several stories going at the same yes, time? Yes, And you keep on reworking them and reworking them and yes, reworking them? Yes, I have about five going simultaneously. And then uh, the, the text is... is um, is is in chaos, and there, I'm just always looking for words that are exciting, in some way, have life, yeah. and I circle them <laughs> because it's you know maybe there's it's a little handful, you circle something here, something there, and then I try to find connections. So this then I number it one, you know that this circle of of words is number one, and this circle is number two, and this is three. And then I keep moving them until they until they so give the off instinct. energy. And right. then, but there has to be there's so many things to. It's very complex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there has to be coherence. Yeah, yeah. And and it can't be terribly terribly boring. <laughs> I sort of feel like I, I'm not going to say which books, but just downstairs, I was showing Diane a couple of books, and she just opened and looked at the first sentence and said, no, I can't even read that. <laughs> it was like, just quite... What was the word trudged? Trudging. And clustered. If I hit those words, it's over. <laughs> I was going to take that book home, but I'm going to put it back in the show. Um, you've also said that apparently you manage your text like a musical score. Yes. I mean, are you musical? Do you- Probably not. Well, I mean, I, I would like to be. This is my way of being musical. So to try to, to hear the words, and um, when when I was teaching, we 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 spoke about this, how to get how to get um, the words to create. Well, they, they create a different feeling in the throat if it's yeah. uh, if it's 
it, it, they, it can be a, a sensation of a scream or a sigh or a shout. But to be aware of what sounds feel like what and what the, 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 the acoustics, the cadence, all of it. So you're always reading aloud yes. while you're writing. Yes, and, and moving, you know, even the perfect, the perfect sentence is not necessarily perfect unless I pick up the last three words and move them to the front. Yeah. And then change my mind and move them to the middle. So, yeah. And that's why my work is so short, because I don't think I, I don't have the character or the stamina to do that for a novel. I just don't think I, I could Although do it. Although you do have some novellas in this collection. Yes, but I've never been able to do it again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're in there. but. I mean, I also liked the fact that I heard you saying that you create them like a musical score, partly because I, I mean, I was quite frustrated. There was a review of Noon, uh, 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 um, uh, a literary journal that Diane, I'm sure some of you have heard of, that Diane edits and yes. creates that comes out every year. And there was quite a irritating review, in my view, in the Times Literary Supplement um, about it. And one of my irritations was that the author seemed to be frustrated about not being able to understand some of the text. Yes. And I sort of feel reading your work, which I know isn't, isn't you know, that's not the noon annual, but reading your work, I just feel like I do if I listen to music or if I go into an art gallery. I don't approach it expecting to understand it. A translation. No, I just have a sort of, I let the feeling kind of wash over me and, and, and I'm left with a really exciting, I feel something almost physical yes. in response to the work. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. Yeah, well, yeah, isn't that what we want? You know, that's what we want. And and editing Noon, I'm always always looking for that. Right. For somebody who cares about the language in in a deep way. Right. And I was also struck by your epigraphs in this book, Uh um, that some of the epigraphs for each collection are just fantastic. One of them is, um, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> then another one this is the epigraph thank goodness it's really unsettling then another one I must eat my dinner by Shakespeare allegedly no really it's Caliban really he said it I must eat my dinner <laughs> in the middle it's a, it's a glor- very lyrical passage and suddenly this flat footed sentence I must eat my dinner <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could write that. Well, then you it's have inspiring. another. Yeah, you have another epigraph. It is inspiring. I don't, I don't know if it's a sentence I like, actually, but perfectly safe. Go ahead. From Vicky Swanky is a beauty, and that epigraph is by you, by Diane Williams. Yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised too. <laughs> Um, I did want to talk. We have got a little bit of time left. I wanted to talk a bit about. Um, reviewers, if you don't mind, because there have been two fantastic um, reviews of this book, one by Merv Emray, who I think might be here tonight, who wrote a really fabulous review in the New York Review of Books, in which she described your stories as the best sex you will never have, <laughs> which I just keep thinking about that. I, I'm just, 
Oh, good. Yeah. Hello. Such a fabulous review. Um, and you also, Merv, say, is it Merv? Merve. Merve, say, um, that Diane writes, more than any other writer today, Diane Williams understands the essentially tragicomic nature of the penis, human or otherwise. She goes on, penises in your stories never do what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Which I've also thought a lot about that. What are they supposed to be doing? Depends on... Depends on many things, doesn't it? Um, but I, but but sort of more seriously, I mean, there is a sort of. I suppose there might be some people who might find it irritating the sort of laughing about that. But your there is a kind of political aesthetic in your work. I mean, I feel like your work could only be written by a woman, but uh-huh. there is quite a lot of taking the piss of men. Is that? Do you think that would be fair? Or Taking. Sort of, what do you mean? I mean, kind of poking fun at men. Oh. No. Sort of. Probably. You know. But I don't. Uh, wouldn't like to admit that. Okay. <laughs> Let's say I'll I just, didn't. I'll I didn't say admit it. it. But there's certainly not a kind of deliberate feminism, which I find no. a relief, and I think I have wondered if a lesser writer might slip into that. But you don't. You 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 keep pushing. You push for a sort of truth not for a particular ideology. Thank you for saying that. Oh. <laughs> that um, makes me feel good. Well, and there was kind of, I wanted just to come to a, to a final question and then I will open it up to you, which is that another literary critic, David Winters, who some of you here may know, he, um, and he's said to be a massively intelligent, erudite, inquiring analyst of American letters. I was reading his book, <laughs> Infinite Fictions, in preparation to meet you, didn't talk to you this evening. And he, in that book, he reviews Lydia Davis, he reviews Gordon Lish and many other great names. But in the introduction, says that he lacks the skill to review you. And I thought, blimey, if this sort of erudite inquiring analyst of American letters can't review you, what on earth am I doing in conversation with you? (laughs) But then I found myself thinking, well, what skills does a critic require to review your work? Because you have had, you have had... Yes, I've there had, have been poor oh, reviews, crap reviews. Yes, I would but say. there have been very gratifying reviews, right? That I'm very, very grateful for. Yes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, thank you very Leave much. Well, let's open it to you guys. Who would like to ask Diane a question? Um, I, oh, thank you. I was getting nervous with the microphone. Diane, I just was so thrilled to hear that word language in your mouth. Because the minute you remind us of everything that you care about and do is the business of putting words in mouths. And your presentation, your reading of your stories is so, so magical to be yes. sitting on this side yes. and hearing what feels like a kind of um, recital of timpani and percussion 
every single word having presence and having energy. Now, I think I'm a little bit confused about all of this, what I might call the lish stuff, you know, the connection yes. between life and art, whatever. Yes. But what you are giving us is a hyper-awareness of what, you know, the great Muriel Spark talked about, the idea of words are things, you know, yes. words are the ideas. That's right. And you talked about your beautiful way of making, that you gather around and you ring words and you find the words that are going to speak and have energy and frighten you and do all of these lovely things. Can I also ask you, when you're in that process of making your wonderful stories, are you actually letting those same words that excite you take you on the journey yes. of the, the story? And yes, because be. I don't know what the story is. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. 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 So to that extent, all of this other talk about, you know, whether oneself is in the work and the connection between... I was interested in the questions, Lara, between this idea of the history of a, a life of blood sport and a sense of the biography, you know, the autobiography. Mm -hmm. To that extent, we can really cast this aside, can't we? Because the stories are about themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. They, sta they, they stand... They're, they're, not, they're not a description of something I have necessarily ever experienced. Um, it's something other. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love the most about your stories is the ways in which people's bodies become unfamiliar to themselves, mm -hmm. yes. particularly in really intimate situations. And... It's interesting how that changes over the course of the collection. So by the time you get to fine, 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 um, I love how you have these descriptions of women who are so gemmed, or people that are so gemmed. There's a lot of jewelry. Yes, I there like that. There are all that. these sort of hard like busts. There are all of these ways in which our <laughs> accessories yes. become sort of extensions of the human body. So I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about how you think about and maybe how you're thinking about the body uh -huh. has changed over time and how one sort of relates their words or their mind to the body. I don't know if I can do that question justice. I don't, I don't know that I've, I've ever thought about anything that you're asking. And I, you have a perspective on what I'm doing that, that I don't have. Um, I, I gem up people because... I love jewelry. <laughs> and and for, for many years, I believed, I really believed, I guess, like primitive people do, that if I had the right talisman, it would work a kind of magic that would change everything. And um, I, I miss that because that's very exciting. Because it could be right around the corner. It didn't have to be expensive, but it had to look. It it I would know it when I would see it. So I I always knew that that was it, and that would change everything if I just owned it, even if it was, you know, um, a piece of glass. But it but it looked a certain way. And um, and I guess some of, that's that's true even in some of my later stories. It's something that, that doesn't let go, that there, that, there, that there might be a way to, to find 
or to own um, ultimate protection. But your your question is. No, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly getting at what I. I hope so because I I love the idea of it being totemic. Okay. Oh, hi. Um, You you've mentioned your um, writing in relation to Gordon Lesh and not writing a novel. Do you think there's something in his approach to the density of language and sound that means it's almost impossible to write novels that way, partly because of finite time, but also because it becomes wearying on the reader to have that level of jeweledness in the prose or that level of muscularity in it. So can you think of examples of novels or are are there novels which you think achieve that, you know, over 200 pages? Oh, well, I don't know about the exact uh, page count. Um, uh, Rain by... by A good soldier that I... I just told I've Lara just to buy got it that today. On her, we've just been reading it downstairs, going, "This is amazing." The Good Soldier, your book. Buy it, everybody. After Rain, you bought Diane's book, Rain, buy a Good Soldier. Rain by Kirsty Gunn. Um, the novels of Christine Scott come to mind. Yeah, um, but um, I would say that you're right in that if you, it, that's part of the that that is the. the the um, the skill that is necessary not to just jam up anything in a kind of um, um, crazy ornateness or or um, I mean that that is the genius of of knowing when to say I must eat my supper and maybe maybe you maybe you need maybe you need two paragraphs of how I must eat my supper and I'll and I'm Walking over to get it now. Watch, watch me as I go. This really feels good. I, as I go to get my supper, would be in the middle of something that was that was more challenging and and had had um, more devices going. Um, that that is that's what's necessary because because you you don't want to to have people you know all all. Um, all balled up in ribbon. I mean, that won't work. <laughs> Somebody at the back. Hi. Um, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, have you ever lost hope? I can't hear... Have, have you ever lost hope in the act of writing? Oh, absolutely. How, where did you find... Pardon me? Then where did you find it again? Um, I, I rarely have hope, especially <laughs> when I'm beginning something. It's entirely hopeless and very depressing. Hooray! Um, <laughs> there's nothing there. There's no... The memory of having done it seems, seems preposterous that it was ever done before. Who was the person who did it? And if you dwell on it, well, there's a story I really love, and I did it, and I'm so proud of myself, but I, I, can't, I, but why, but I can't do it again, so I must not have that skill anymore. That is, that is a haunting, and there's I, I haven't found any solution for it. Nor do I know any anybody who's who's seriously doing this work who doesn't suffer that problem. 
So it's just, it's like going into a mine and shoveling coal. I'll shovel and shovel and shovel. I'll shovel and shovel and shovel, and it hurts. Um, but I'll keep shoveling because this is my job. And it's painful, very, very painful. And um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have the remedy. There's time for one more question. Who'd like to... Oh, yes, why don't... Yes. Thank you for being with us and sharing and reading and so on. Uh, my collaborator and I, we have a, a running joke, and, and you know, when we ask each other, how are you? And we, if we say fine, then that doesn't count. You have to say fine, fine, <laughs> fine, fine. And that, that translates into fine. Um, but I was interested in this... There's a, there's, a, there's a length that you have and you keep coming back to yeah. so that the canvas is like this big. That's right. And, and then sometimes it feels like, okay, it's this big. <laughs> and yeah, what determines that? How With does that, good luck how does that makes feel? It this big. But frequently when, when, I, when I, I have an event like this and I'm looking for stories to read and I hit one of my longer stories, which I'm so thrilled to have produced they're not fun to read which means they're probably not as well made because the stories I enjoy reading um, there's the music is better so and the stories that aren't as well made um, it, it I don't enjoy reading them aloud it's sad it's so it's wonderful really hearing you read aloud. That's such a pleasure. Yeah. There should be an audio. There, there, I have read my own works. And are they recorded? Can, can yes. we? Oh, yes. fantastic. Okay. Yes. But not this book. This book was done by... Uh, I lost control of it. <laughs> but other books of mine I've read. Well, there's books on sale. Diane's here to sign them and talk to you. Thank you so much. To, and also Claire, who's been so Thank wonderful you. in organising Thank you, the London all, Review really. Books and Claire. Yeah, yes. you've been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.